Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those who are disillusioned. Today's podcast is slightly different as this coming week on 17th of March is St Patrick's Day. So who was St Patrick? What do we know about him? Where did he live? What evidence do we have of St Patrick here on the Emerald Isle of Ireland? Why is my voice so echoey (laughs) with me to discuss, describe and show me the answers are two people from episode 28 who just happen to be St Patrick's Way Pilgrim Guides. Gives me great pleasure to say hello again to former BBC NI's political correspondent Martina Purdy and former barrister Elaine Kelly. Welcome back guys. Now, before we start any further, I have a quiz for you. How are you feeling by the way, Martina? I feel great. (laughs) I'm uh, not as long as there's a, uh, let me see, I don't fail this quiz, I'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, obviously you're a colleague, but also a person against you in the quiz today. Uh, How are you doing, Elaine? I am doing pretty good. It's great to be here in the uh, Cradle of Christianity here at Saul, where Patrick first had his church and the first, um, you know, church, Christian church we had in Ireland right here. Looking forward to hearing more about it in a minute. By the way, if you want to contact us, you can. Our email address is ogc at accessradio.biz. That's ogc at accessradio.biz. We'll start our tour shortly. However, before we do, I have six questions for you both. And as you're returning guests, it's a quiz, but a quiz with a difference because you've done the other five questions before. So the first person to answer correctly wins a point. Oh now, it's very easy, this one. Who wants to say fizz? So I know who's asking, answering, and who wants to say buzz? Are you going to go fizz or buzz? I'll go for buzz. Elaine's got plenty of fizz. <laughs> Martina's got loads of buzz. Okay, here we go. Surprise? Maybe. I'll, I'll, I'll work out if there's a prize later on. Depends. <laughs> okay, here we go. Question one. What have Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and the island of Montserrat all got in common. Buzz. Um, uh, sorry, Martina Purdy. They are all founded by... <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, all founded by the same person? No. <laughs> no. It's, I told you it was going to be slightly surreal. Uh, the answer is that they're all public holidays in these countries or uh, areas, um, and especially for civil servants in the Canadian province. Oh, there you are. There you are. St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Oh, very good. I didn't. I didn't know that. Well yeah. done. Well done, Martin. Well done. You've done your homework. <laughs> well, Google has anyway. <laughs> Question two. I like this one. What annual tradition dates back to 1952 and was started by John Hearn? Green beer. Buzz. <laughs> Martina Purdy. Green beer on St Patrick's Day. That's a great answer. No. I throw it open. Give us a clue. <laughs> uh, United States of America. It's not Thanksgiving, is it? No, no. I don't think that was started by John Hearn. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, it might have been Who one of the pilgrims. John Hearn? Is that the, the actor? John Hearn, H-E-A-R-N-E. He was U.S. ambassador in 1982. Oh, yeah, that's, is, that, is that the, uh, the party, all the... The Shamrock Bowl on St. Patrick's Day at the White House? Uh, well, do you know what? Do you know what? We're really feeling miserably at this. I'm going to give you that because he was the one that started the idea of giving shamrocks. He started it by giving it to Harry Truman uh, as he was the Irish ambassador to the United States of America. Uh, and every year since then, it's been a tradition that has morphed into now both presidents meeting on the 17th of March. Okay, question three. Why in 1940 was St. Patrick's Day observed on the 3rd of April? Buzz. 
Martina Purdy. Because of the Second World War? Do you know, I thought that answer, no. Shall I tell you? Okay, uh, because in 1940, 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, was also Palm Sunday, and it cannot coincide with Holy Week, so they then moved it. That was a very early Lent. I was going to say Lent, but then I thought, nah, but there you go. (laughs) Also happened again in 2008, actually, when they made it uh, 15th of March, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Question four. (laughs) Don't have to look at the scoreboards, do you? Uh, What year did St. Patrick's Day become an official public holiday in Ireland? In Ireland as a whole or north and south? Uh, Ireland as a whole. Was it 1921, 22 or something like that? I'll tell you, I'll give you uh, within 15 years of the answer. So, no, not not that one. 1937? Oh, even even worse. Uh, 1903, funnily enough. Oh, wow, 1903. I wasn't sure. Yeah. Uh, question five. In 1927, what did the Irish Free State ban on St. Patrick's Day, which wasn't repealed until 1961? Have to do buzz. Was it drinking? Uh, uh, sorry, Elaine Kelly. Was, was it drinking? Drinking in the pubs open, something like that? It was. It was indeed. It was a selling of alcohol. Okay. Except, funnily enough, at the RDS dog show. RDS uh, is what, the Royal Dublin Showgrounds? Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. Um, RDS dog show where it was legal so you could just imagine all these thousands of people going everybody, and go, oh. everybody went I bet they did yeah complaining why have they got a dog show here get rid of them <laughs> so yes that's true that is true alcohol was banned until 1961 for being sold on St Patrick's Day so you're one up ah oh. and uh, here we go question six the world record is 23 po- uh, sorry can I just say it? this question I love if you want surreal questions this is it the world record is 23.4 metres long. What is it in relation to St. Patrick's Day, please? Buzz. Martina Purdy. The longest float in a parade. That's actually a really good answer. No. <laughs> I'm going to give you a clue here. It is the world record, 23.4 metres long, but it's actually the shortest, not the longest. Oh. It's the shortest, but the shortest what, though? Mm, not the shortest parade. It is the shortest parade. <laughs> Would you... <laughs> well done, Elaine. That was, that was Elaine. <laughs> it was. Well done, Elaine. So are you going to expand on that answer? No. Good answer as well. That's, I'll give you another bonus point for that one. Uh, just for giving me the right answer. Being no. It was actually the annual event in Dripsy, County Cork. It was the shortest parade as it was the distance between the two village pubs. I was going to say a pub must have been involved. Two pubs in this case, yeah. Only lasted nine years, though, because uh, one of the pubs closed down. Aww. Oh, no. Terrible. I know. I know. It's almost like you want to go and buy the other pub and reopen it, don't you? Just like, yeah. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you two bonus points so we can make it level. Uh, this is for all our Canadian listeners and people have been to Canada. Which Canadian city has a shamrock in its flag? Buzz, I would say St. John's, Newfoundland. Did you say Montreal? Well done, you did. Phew, so that's, thank you very much indeed, well said. That's my accent, I heard, you definitely heard Montreal. <laughs> so there you go, a six uh, plus a bonus point question of slightly surreal questions regarding St. Patrick, but as we know, St. Patrick's is celebrated, St. Patrick's Day, shall say, and 17th Martha is celebrated all around the world now. Um, and before we go into the history of it, just to you two guys really here, uh, why, why did you both want to become a, a, a pilgrim guide on, and do St. Patrick's Way? Let's start with the winner of that quiz, and that's Elaine. Okay, uh, Martin, basically, Martina and I 
had met when we were Adoration Sisters on the Falls Road in Belfast. And after five years, quite unheard of, we had to leave together with two other women because the congregation grew too small to keep us, and that was in 2019. And eventually, uh, they will, you know, the congregation will die out. So we got an invitation, very unexpected, from a lady called Carol Toner, and quite providentially to come to Dan Patrick. And we, we both came and uh, to Dan Patrick, and just before lockdown, Martina was offered a job working for the St. Patrick Centre uh, in PR, and then she had to come home and work from home after that because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And she came upon the idea when she looked through all the material that was there concerning the bigger St. Patrick's Way, which is some 80-odd miles from Armagh to uh, Dan Patrick. She saw potential within Dan Patrick and beyond and here in Saul for another walk, another way. So she brought me into it and with Tim, the director, and the three of us together looked at it and we scouted and found various ways around Dan Patrick and Saul and all these areas, which is where Patrick spent most of his life, and discovered that actually there are so many you know, routes and ways where Patrick walked, you know, where he touched lives here, that actually it was a Camino of its own. So St. Patrick's Way, Dan Patrick, Newcastle, all the other Caminos was born. And out of that, myself and Martina were asked by the centre to become pilgrim guides, which I never would have thought in a million years. And eventually it um, developed into each of us um, getting formal qualifications. And now we're formally approved and uh, authorised by the Northern Ireland Tourist Guide Association. And we have fully accredited uh, guides on St. Patrick's Way. But that has now become, beyond a way of living, it's always been a mission. A mission to bring people out into all these areas, to show them the authentic Patrick. It's for all faiths and none, universal, beyond faith and creed and all that. Uh, so people can come and enjoy not only just that aspect, but the beauty of this area and the wonderful story of a 16-year-old boy from Roman Britain trafficked, which is a very real story now, yeah. trafficked to the north of Ireland, uh, where he spent six years tending sheep on the slopes of uh, Slemish until the moment when Patrick's heart was opened by the Holy Spirit and he answered the call of his life and his, and his baptism to become Patrick the Apostle. And the rest is history. Thank you. Camino, I've heard that word before. What, what does Camino mean for those that don't know what it means there, Martina? Well, it's a reference to the way, uh, the Camino path that was made famous, um, St. James to Santiago. Uh, the Spanish Camino uh, is very famous around the world. Even a film has been made about it by uh, Martin Sheen, the actor the um, who starred in The West Wing. Oh, yes. Very well known. And... I suppose for me, um, the St. Patrick's Way, I mean, the way is what um, the early church was called by the early Christians. And uh, so it has a very spiritual importance to us. Uh, I have a confession to make. I never wanted to be a pilgrim guide on St. Patrick's Way. It was not something I kind of sought out. What I wanted after I, I left the convent, which was not my choice, was I suppose I started to pray for a mission because I didn't want a job. I'd had a high-powered career at the BBC, and I wanted something that would pay the bills but was rooted in Christianity. When, during the lockdown, you know, I never had a job at the centre. I had a a kind of a verbal contract, and I wanted to honour that. So Elaine and I started to walk around Dan Patrick, which had 
kind of been a bit of a mystery to us because we used to leave Don Patrick to go to Newcastle for our walks. And um, Elaine really likes to walk, as do I. And our friend said, why don't you walk around Don Patrick? And we were like, nah, we want to go to Newcastle, um, which is also part of St. Patrick's Way, unbeknownst to us. But because the lockdown forced us to stay in Don Patrick, um, we realized all the beauty that was and the rich heritage that was here. And so we started to walk to these amazing sites. The one we're here, Saul, is the site of Patrick's first church. Yeah. Now, we were here by chance or providence two years before we actually moved to John Patrick. Three years, Elaine's holding up her fingers. So uh, Elaine and I and two other sisters knelt here. We, we prayed for Christian unity. And fast forward three years, I was writing a pilgrim passport for the seven sites that we, we linked in a 28K Camino in Downpatrick with the help of uh, Dr. Tim Campbell of the, of the center. And Tim really loved it. It captured his imagination. My idea was that people would walk this on their own, but he said, no, 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 they need guides. And I don't even think he asked Elaine and I, but next thing you know, we were on the St. Patrick Center uh, Facebook page, and he was taking bookings for walks with us. And it really took off. Hundreds of people in the first summer just came, and people who had been in lockdown and wanting to get out and wanting a, an adventure, a spiritual and physical kind of challenge uh, came along. It was great, and I really enjoyed it. But I have to say, I suppose up until this year, I regarded it as a bit of a consolation prize for not being a religious sister. But now I really see it as part of my mission, as my Christian mission, to bring the authentic Patrick to people and let them make up their own minds about his message of love and forgiveness. As we came down here from uh, the top of the North Coast, Alice and I were listening to episode 28. So for people that want to know more about yourselves your journey to get to become pilgrims, may I strongly suggest you listen to episode 28. But one thing that came out of me, out of that was just how you both realised that actually being evangelist was, was the way, as if you were like going to be with people, people coming on the Camino Way, obviously in Spain is one thing, but people coming on the St. Patrick's Way here in Northern Ireland, you, you just be with people. Let's move back then to while we're here today and talk about St. Patrick, who he was, and why we're in this fantastic, lovely church. So who's going to go and start off first? Let's go to Buzz. Fizz, <laughs> fizz, actually, fizz. fizz. <laughs> Do I get a point for that? You do indeed. That's, yes, you get another point for correcting me. Thank you. Okay. So, Thank you very much. <laughs> Elaine Kelly, tell us more, please. Okay, so we're sitting here in a beautiful stone church, which was built in 1933, and to commemorate the 15 centuries from Patrick arriving here first in the north of Ireland, he actually arrived in 432, just a short distance away in the northeast there. He had come up the Irish Sea, and some say that he was trying to go to uh, Slemish and further up Antrim coast to be reconciled with his old slave master, Melku. And others say that he was aiming here because here you had a lot of the royalty of the time and the chieftains, and Patrick knew that in order to been able to, you know, further persuade people of Christianity, he would need to go to the top men first. Mm. And then if he could invite them to, to become Christian, to show them the goodness of the gospel, then if they wanted, the people would follow. So Patrick came up and was blown in through the Irish, from the Irish Sea into Strangford. It's Norse for uh, strong fords. Oh, right, okay, thank you. Strangford, and there's a strong Viking presence here as well. So he came up Strangford, and he arrived a short distance away, um, coming in to, through the Slaney River and arrived at Assestry. 
And as he arrived, and he and his cohort were getting off the boat, you can imagine there there was uh, obviously eyes looking at mm. what they were doing. There was a swineherd who saw him and went and notified his master, who was a, a nobleman by the name of uh, Diku, or Dichu, D-I-C-H-U. And he came at Patrick thinking, obviously, he was an invader or something like that. And he had his men with him, and he also had a dog, and he had a sword. And Patrick, he encountered Patrick, and he, Patrick saw the, the dog. Patrick just said a few words of the Psalms, and the dog was subdued and knelt down. And then when Diku's uh, sword froze in his hand, because he was in the presence of Patrick, mm. you know, who was who calls himself later in his confessions uh, the national apostle to the Irish. So when that happened, Dishu accepted, knew he was in the presence of a man of grace, and he and his daughter became two of the first Christian converts. And they were baptized a short distance away from here down, just down the Marne Road there. Patrick baptized them Christians. So in his joy, Dishu offered Patrick his barn, which is on this, this spot. And um, it was a barn, and uh, the Irish for that, the, the interpretation of that is Saul. So hence, this area is now called Saul. So Patrick took the barn, and it became the first church. And from here, Patrick built up Christianity in the north very rapidly. He had his, he had his strife and his troubles, and he says in his confessions, and he says at times daily expected to be killed, but he had great success because as the, stat, as the sorry, the stained glass window there shows you in this beautiful church, um, it's an image of Patrick. You can see that he's a man filled with grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And so he was very successful. So Patrick went from here and around the area converting people to Christianity and he had great success. The people originally here would at times have been subject to the likes of child sacrifice. They would have been subject to the superstitions and the wizardry of the day. So they could have been quite oppressed. So when Patrick came and offered the good news of the gospel, the people readily accepted it. And it's said that that Ireland was one of the most bloodless Christian converts to Christianity, the whole country. And I think a great reason for that is because of the Holy Spirit working in the power of one man. Um, Patrick from Patricius, as he was known, his name meant noble. It's likely that his name was Mervyn Sukat, Maywyn Sukat, from uh, most likely the kind of where the Severn is, you know, the Wales area of Roman Britain. Very well, yeah. Most likely. But he took the name Patricius, which meant noble. I did hear from a very good friend of mine who's Welsh saying that there's actually a link between St. Patrick and St. David. I don't know if you've heard that at all, have you? No, I, I haven't heard that, but it's quite interesting because yesterday was only the Feast of St. David, so, you know, they, they both share the same month. They do. And for those who are going to say, yes, but this is all, this is all a myth, how, how do we know about this history of him coming up Strangford Lock and everything else? What do we know about that, Martina? Well, there's a great oral tradition in, in, uh, on this island. And Patrick has said that the story of Ireland begins with the story of Patrick because Patrick was the first person uh, to write down his story possibly inspired by St. Augustine, who wrote his Confessio some decades not long before Patrick. We have the confession of Patrick himself, which you can get online. We have also the letter to Caroticus, uh, the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, who uh, was a Christian himself, who came from Scotland, and he slaughtered and, and enslaved Christians um, that Patrick had baptized. One of the strongest traditions, and we have, you know, the story of Patrick is told down through the ages, and there's, you know, this is the annals 
But there's also um, a song that dates back to uh, the 8th century, which um, is very strong evidence that Patrick was just a few miles from here. And there's a a pre-Christian site called Struel Wells, where they probably had Christian rituals because the pre-Christian Celts uh, worshipped the elements, including water. There's a stream there. And Patrick went to the, well, to the well there, and he bathed in the well, singing psalms all night. And there's a song about that. You know, there's a lot of things we can't be certain about Patrick. You know, for example, the date of his birth. The tradition is that he died on the 17th of March, probably around 460, 461 AD. Some say 462, and some say later. The fact is that uh, Patrick was here, and he was in Armagh. And he is buried by tradition in Downpatrick. And, you know, there has been some hagiography over the years. When you look at some of the stories, they seem so exaggerated. And that's also part of the oral tradition, if you if you look at some of the um, stories that come down from other cultures. But there is a truth at the heart of Patrick's story, that he was a slave. He tells his story, how he was brought here. He said that he deserved what he got, because at 16, he wasn't listening to his priests. He wasn't really interested in the faith that was handed down by his Christian family. Patrick was from a, probably a very comfortable class, uh, spoke Latin, um, would have been quite privileged, would have had servants. He says in his um, letter to the soldiers of Caroticus that he saw his father's servants murdered before he was taken, quite brutally. And the age of 16 brought to an isolated hillside, probably slummish. There are some who argue it was maybe uh, elsewhere on the island, but there's strong tradition that it was slummish. There's, someone told me, and I haven't checked it yet that there's a gate in Lauren called Patrick's Gate and that's where the slaves would have been brought through and Patrick uh, speaks about how he had this amazing experience of God and you imagine a 16 year old today being trafficked in a very violent circumstances if you go to Slamish and walk it you get this sense that if you were 16 all alone and a slave that you would feel that you would never see your family again and Patrick so you know Patrick himself tells his story and then others take it up and of course, myths and traditions that are passed down from generation to generation, some of them actually prove out to be true. You don't have to look at Richard III. Oh, yeah, he's buried underneath a car park in, in <laughs> Leicester. Yeah, right. And guess what? He was. <laughs> I have to say, this church is fantastic. I mean, it's about the size of uh, the width of a Babington Court, I suppose. In my day, we'd just call it an oblong building and about one and a half, maybe one and a half lengths of a Babington Court. But it's, it's, it's beautiful. And just to remind me again, this church is put on the site because of, of what? Regarding St. Patrick? Yeah, the, on this site is the barn that Diku gave to Patrick and so its significance. And there's always been a church here. There was obviously the Reformation, which happened in the early 1500s. And at that point, obviously, the Christian, Catholic Christian community that was living here at that time, you know, there was a monastery built up around this area. And there were monks here as well, Augustinian canons. That all had to change. Obviously, over time, they had to leave, and it fell into ruin. But eventually, the Anglican Communion came and took it over. And this particular incarnation is 1933. And at the present time, the church, this area, is under the auspices of Dean Henry Hull. Mm -hmm. And um, the wonderful thing about this area, I found it at Patrick, and I've lived here for a couple of years, uh, is that it's very ecumenical. I mean, having been brought up in the North myself and being very aware of the divisions within Christian communities, and unfortunately at times the bloodshed that's led to, is how much in this area the local church groups work together. 
and also Henry, Dean Henry Hill himself has said that the Anglican communion here, they consider themselves very much the custodians of this church, of also of Down Cathedral, where Patrick is next to where Patrick is buried. They consider themselves custodians. In other words, it's all are very welcome. And this is actually a working church, and it has um, services on a Sunday and other days as well. And uh, it has a very good community that come here and pray and worship. And as you saw this morning when we arrived, the door, the church is open. The church is open daily. It's open early in the morning and closed just when darkness falls. And anyone who wishes to can come and pray. And um, this is the place, this site on this site is where, as Martina had said earlier, Patrick died here. And we'll go later on to where he's supposedly, I mean, let's not say, let's not say supposedly, where he actually is buried. Yeah, best evidence is that Patrick is buried on the Hill of Down, where we're going to go towards the end, I assume, of the of the podcast. But the best evidence is he's buried there. And because it's slightly cold outside this morning, I was going to say, well, let's go outside and you can describe everything, but I'm going to stay in here, that's right. But before we did come in, you did point out, oh, look at that little Wendy house over there. And over there is Strangford Lock, which is true, and it's gorgeous in the distance, about three, four miles away. And it's, obviously we've got some blue sky, so it was reflecting blue. But what was this Wendy house about 50 yards in front of us? What was all that about, Martina? Well, this is a very ancient holy site, and there's a, there's a cemetery out there, and there is a little stone house and we have heard different stories about what it was i mean we had one theory was that it was pretty small so you could be a very small monk's cell as i said a monastic site with an abbot here someone else said it might have been patrick's original grave you go up close to it and kind of go down some little steps and we were talking to mike king who used to work at the museum in down patrick and he told us that actually it was built um, after the reformation there was an abbot who kind of stubbornly remained here and he built this little house and he said because people were still coming here on pilgrimage this is one of the most ancient pilgrimage sites on this island so people still wanted to come and and connect with Patrick so they'd come and he wanted to show them something so he'd say that house that was Patrick's house Uh, but we joke it was the original St. Patrick's Centre in Down Patrick before ours was built 20 years ago which is well worth a visit but outside as well there's um, gravestones that are go back more than a thousand years. Some of the Christian artifacts that are found here are in the Down Museum. Um, there's a little tower attached to this uh, church, some mystery attached to these towers that are kind of pop up. They point to the sky, they point to heaven, and some people think that they are either ornamental or maybe they were historically for defensive purposes, but you'd see a round tower like that in, I think, in Waterford, St. Declan's Way. And inside, Elaine and I uh, show the um, one of the main features inside is this beautiful stained glass window, uh, which was made by Evie Hone, a woman who eventually, actually, she was Christian. She converted to Catholicism about 1937, I read. And it has very vibrant colors, some uh, illustrative of some Harry Clark, for those who know about stained glass windows. Nope. And, no, and uh, very vibrant colors, and they tell the story of St. Patrick. And I'll let Elaine tell that little bit about the stained glass window and, yeah. and, how, and what the symbols refer to. Please, because I'm very bad at describing, but I do see some blue, which must mean a lock in the, the top part of, of the old typical arched window, and obviously a crook, and as in something to hold on to, and obviously a, a ship. But what else? Well, before you say that, I'm going to ask you a quiz question. What is the national colour of Ireland? 
blue. Oh, well, well done, you passed. Well done, you passed. <laughs> you passed that one. <laughs> you won the quiz. <laughs> Only because that was going to be a question. <laughs> okay. No, I wish you had asked that. <laughs> you picked the hardest for us, Martin. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> I didn't know that until I started doing the quiz, but yes, blue apparently. Uh, and maybe yeah. that's why Northern Ireland's football kit is blue for the away kit. Just thinking that. Yeah. Whenever you look at the stained glass window, as Martina's pointed out, it's a beautiful image of Patrick. And it would have been Patrick when he arrived. He was roughly around 46 when he arrived here. And he would have been really, you know, at the zenth of his spiritual powers, I suppose. A man full, full of zest and zeal for the gospel. And you can see that above him at the top, there is the image of a dove, which represents yes. the Holy Spirit. Patrick was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, because when he left uh, Ireland, when the Lord showed him how to escape, he went on the boat. The boat took him to France and eventually back to his home. But when he, when he left to follow the call uh, to come back here, he first became a monk, then a priest, then a bishop. So he was very much prepared, something perhaps maybe more than 20 years prepared for his mission. It just didn't happen overnight. He was equipped with what he needed. Because one of the reasons the room. The Romans never invaded Ireland, they say for mainly two reasons, and one because there was really nobody for them to come and take, and secondly because they considered the Hibernians, as it was known then, they considered the occupants to be barbarians. So you can imagine, I'm not going to say anything about that now, <laughs> but you can imagine Patrick coming here, previous attempts, particularly in relation to the North, to try and you know, bring Christianity proved unsuccessful, but Patrick... You know, he was the man. So a man very full of the Holy Spirit, and you can see the image of the dove, and you can see also light coming down, the grace of the Holy Spirit. And you see a fire on a hill just above him. Yes, now that is very interesting because... It looks like, can I just say, it looks like a space rocket taking off. What it shows you is the dove um, with the divine grace red above it. And then ah, you can see... Excuse my ignorance. Yeah, there's no problem. And then you can see sort of like a flow of grace and kind of white coming down yes. and then you see a touching of fire okay yes. so what that represents is patrick dearly wanted to light the, the the easter fire in ireland and he got his moment and around 433 he went down to slain you know slain mm-hmm. and across from slain there would have been the hill of tara and the hill of tara was very famous because the kings of tara royal kings were very powerful men mm-hmm. And they also had a fire that they lit there around that time for their pagan festivals. So Patrick chose Slane, which was just adjacent across from Tara. And he lit this Paschal fire at the time of the Easter Vigil um, to represent the, the dawning of a new day, of a new era in Ireland, of Fibernia, uh, of, of, of Christianity. And of course, the Tara king at the time, Dunleary, saw that. And he came with his char- on his chariots with his wizards and his black magic merchants and all his men to destroy Patrick. But of course, that didn't happen. Patrick defeated all that they did, all their black magic. He had the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the examples is he was given a goblet. This is well documented. He was given a goblet of wine by one of the magicians to drink. Patrick took the goblet of wine, blessed it, turned it upside down, and the, the poison fell out of it. The rest had been frozen. When Patrick turned it back up, he blessed it. The wine was just wine, and he drank it. So there was all these kinds of, um, you know, Machiavellian black magic wizardry going on. That that's, and, of course, that's what happens in the absence of truth, in the absence of Christianity. These things mm. come into play, and that's what happened in Ireland. So when they talk about Patrick banished the snakes from Ireland... 
the snakes represent black magic and all the wizardry and all, all that held the people in fear. Um, he banished all that through the truth, through Christianity. So Patrick lit the first Paschal fire in Ireland on the hill of Slane in about 433. And coming down, you've mentioned the blue. Yes. You can see Patrick's wearing the blue of Ireland yes. as his main cloak. And also you can see, you mentioned the crook. Well, that's, that's the crozier, which is, denotes his office of bishop. He came as Bishop of Ireland, and uh, he was commissioned by Pope Palladius to come as Bishop Celestine. Sorry, Martinez, right? Palladius was one of the previous bishops who came to Ireland. It was Pope St. Celestine who had commissioned Patrick to come here as Apostle of the Irish. And he says that in his confessions, just as St. Paul was sent um, as Apostle to the Gentiles, I was sent as National Apostle to the Irish. Brilliant, thank you. Yeah, and you've got f- almost 50 shades of green grass, haven't you, all around it? Different shades of green. I think that's obviously deliberate as well to show just how rich and verdant this island is. As, as Martina's friend Jackie said to her one time, um, with the rain, it's a reason it's, there's a reason it's green. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. And if you want to get some rain, you know where to come. Well, it's been fantastic here. Where are we going next, though, Martina? Well, if you'd like, uh, there's a St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church between here and Sleep Patrick. And from there, we will go to Sleep Patrick. Because in 1932, when the um, Church of Ireland were building this church uh, to commemorate Patrick's landing, the Roman Catholic community, with very good relationships here, wanted to do something as well. So a local farmer, uh, farmers by the name of Hampton, uh, they donated what was known as Sleeve Willen. It's probably Willen from the Irish Mill. Uh, just about a mile from here. And it was renamed Sleep Patrick, Patrick's Hill, Saul Mountain is also another name for it. And they built the largest monument to Patrick in the world. And that's what we're going to do. So having left Saul Church, you've brought me now and my wife to a massive big church. Why are we here? Okay, Martin, that's a very good question. And uh, when I, on one of the pilgrimages just over a year or so ago, a man asked me the very same question. Well, if you think about it, at the time of the Reformation, obviously there was a division in the church and uh, a separation. And the Anglican Communion then obviously took responsibility for a sole church. But then the local Catholic population, where did they go? So eventually, after the penal laws began to subside, I think they lasted approximately 300 years and finished around the time of the Catholic Emancipation Act, Daniel O'Connell in 1829. There had already been a bit of a laxing of them in the late 1700s. So this particular church, this is an incarnation of a church. A church was built here in the late 1700s. And then eventually a bigger and better church was built here in approximately 1866. And this is the church we're in now. And it was designed by a man known as Jeremiah Macaulay. And he was an architect of a number of churches in the north, including the Cathedral St. Peter's on the Falls Road, and he eventually himself uh, became a priest as well. So this is uh, St. Patrick's in Saul, which is the main church here uh, for the local Catholic population. But as we've said before, there are very good Christian relations between all the main churches that are here. Now, as you look about you, you've mentioned that it's quite a big church. Oh, yes. But you can see it's quite in the style of a, a country church as well. You can see the stained glass windows. Now, one of the main reasons we're here is that we have permission, courtesy of the local parish priest here, um, Father Alexander, to bring pilgrims into the church 
to show them the beauty of the church and the connections to St. Patrick and also to allow the pilgrims to see in a reverential way the original altar stone that Patrick offered Mass on when he was in Salt Church at the time that he arrived here, uh, approximately 432. So what I want to point out to you first is, apart from the, the altar stone, there are some beautiful stained glass windows depicting Patrick's life. And if you look up to the one on the right first, mm-hmm. the one on the right-hand side, yes. now you'll see the beauty of this uh, window. It's um, by a famous Dublin artist known as Harry Clark, who was responsible for a lot of artistry, but in particular stained glass windows. So you can see there that that depicts, on the top of the stained glass window, two-thirds, is Pope St. Celestine. And he was the Pope around the time Patrick came here to Ireland. And if you can see the bottom section of the stained glass window, you'll see Pope St. Celestine seated, gives Patrick the commission the papers, the commission to come to Ireland. And you can see Patrick dressed in the robes of a bishop, dressed in uh, green, denoting the Irish. Excuse my ignorance then. Are we saying here that Patrick, and I'm assuming it all post by this time, was uh, in the Vatican in Rome? Are we saying that he went to Rome? It would have been, most likely it would have been Patrick received his papers from the Pope himself. And that was papal authority for him to come here. He says in his own confessions, which Martin and I were discussing, is really the first history of Ireland, and um, when he first wrote them as an old man before he died. And he says in uh, his confessions that he was himself commissioned, sent as national apostle to the Irish, and that the only authority at the time that would have, he would have received would have obviously at that time come from the Pope. So he might not have gone to Rome, but the letter or whatever would have been given to him. Well, Patrick was quite well-travelled, you know, uh, uh, as well as escaping on a 200-mile trek, mm. uh, miraculously, from this island to go home to his parents. He then had this call to be a priest and ultimately a bishop. So it was said that he went to Gaul, which is now modern France, yeah. that he studied Christianity, and he took the religious name Patricius or Patricius. So it, there's a lot of stories about Patrick travelling right across Europe, so it wouldn't be so, so surprising. But as you can see, it is, it's quite a stunning window, vibrant shades of mustard and, and pink and then Patrick in the green and the, other, the other stained glass window there to our left just across from us facing it two-thirds of that stained glass window shows you it's a very vibrant color of kind of like red Saint Hasek he is a saint he was an indigenous man here who was converted to Christianity through Patrick he was a metal a worker by trade, and you can see the metal crozier that he holds in his hand. The crozier also denotes the fact that he was a bishop as well. And you can see in his hands, is it like a ruined church? It is. And that's his church, St. Hasek's, which is not that far from here, maybe a mile or two up the road. Okay. And it's said to be that he's also buried there as well. Now, if you look beneath it, you can see where we've just come from, Saul. Patrick is there on his deathbed. You can see... Um, the saint there as well, and he's giving him Corpus Christi, body of Christ, the last rites. So that's quite a notable picture in Patrick's life, and it's kind of like one face in the other, when he received his commission to come to Ireland, and that's him on his deathbed. But it's, it's really, really beautiful, stained glass windows, and behind us there, you'll see another vibrant one. That's not by Harry Clark. It's a more recent one, but you can see Patrick, that's him arriving to Ireland and you can see on the left, on the right hand side you can see the man we've mentioned. You can see Dooku there with his sword brandishing it and you can see his dog which is the story I've already told you. So you can see again a very 
vibrant and zealous Patrick arriving to bring Christianity to the shores of Ireland, of the north of Ireland. Well, the way I'm going to remember this from now on in quizzes is that if you know your Star Wars films, you've got Count Dooku, who was, who was the baddie, which sounds remarkably like Deku. Deku, that's right. And Martina, I'm also surprised the saint's name didn't take off, but <laughs> there are, I think there's the saint uh, Dishu uh, Donegal, so I don't know if he headed up there, but it depends on the Irish pronunciation. Yeah, I was just going to say, in Star Wars, don't forget, it was filmed in Donegal as well, back to Dooku again. Well, um, it's, it's regards to Dooku, Martina's mentioned that, I'd read that too, actually there is a Saint Dooku mentioned in the Martyrology in uh, Donegal. So that could well have been our Diku, who was, who was uh, first baptised here by Patrick. And also, Martin will explain about those stained glass windows too, but I believe that Father Alexander told us that they came especially commissioned from Munich, Germany, at the time that the church was being built. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they're very ornate, but very vibrant. So on the left, yeah. you have Patrick, and he's holding a church as well. Uh, symbol of the church he founded and Armagh. one of the mysteries yeah of Armagh it's Armagh Cathedral but one of the mysteries of Patrick is that you know Palladius was here first commissioned to set up Christian churches here he failed miserably so Patrick was incredibly successful and one of the reasons people think that is that he was a slave here uh, he was incredibly spiritual had prayed a hundred times a day a hundred times at night had many gifts of the Holy Spirit but he spoke the language when he came here he understood how the Ulster society worked the the different chieftains how power worked the power of the druids the powers of the, the priests and the the enslavement of the people and he also came in a spirit of forgiveness so Patrick was very authentic Christian a very authentic Christian. You know, it was amazing for him to, having been brutalized here, really, to come back. But he had this dream that the Irish were calling him back, and it took him many years to come back. So that's Patrick on the left. On the right is St. Bridget. And again, you know, we talked about St. David earlier. After Patrick, there were many holy men and women who were, were raised up by God, inspired by his message, by his Christian message. So Bridget was the first woman to establish a monastic life for women on the island. And so she is uh, a second patron of Ireland in, in the Roman Catholic tradition. And then in the center, of course, the center for all Christians is our Lord himself on the cross. How many years after does St. Bridget turn up? A few decades. I mean, there's different, some say that he, she was baptized by Patrick. Other traditions say that she actually made the shroud that he was buried in. Um, but she's very much, uh, you know, maybe a few decades or within a few decades of Patrick. But definitely at the time of him being here, so Bridget is definitely a disciple of Patrick, and whether or not he baptized her, which is the tradition, nonetheless, she was a disciple at the time of Patrick. So Bridget was said to be the daughter of a chieftain. Her father was a chieftain, but her mother was a Portuguese slave. And in those days, people liked to take the relics from the, the bodies, so they say her skull made its way to Portugal, and there's a festival of Bridget there. Yeah. Uh, but she is buried by tradition with Patrick on the hill down cathedral with St. Colum Kill, another saint that was inspired by Patrick. So Patrick has this huge legacy of men and women down the ages. And also another famous saint is St. McCartan. There's a church of St. McCartan not too far from here on Lockan Island. And McCartan was said to be Patrick's strong man. He was paid initially to guard him because we have, when we do the walks, we have cars, but Patrick had pagans with swords. Yeah. So he had people around him to help him. And so he didn't arrive alone, but he certainly had great success in his conversion. Now, this is an unusual church. It still has the altar rails that 
disappeared in most churches post-Vatican uh, II. I'm not sure the story as to why the altar rails are still here, but they are beautiful. They are in marble. And if you go through the entrance, so we have permission, to the right, you will see a little stone attached into the wall with a plaque that says this was the altar stone that Patrick used. We'll so, see that in a minute. Yeah, we'll very reverentially go through, and we'll just as Martina says, we'll have a look at that now. Before we do, two okay. things that come to mind, if that's okay, okay, is that you know we think of St. Patrick being the first person to come over to bring Christianity, but from what you're saying, there's a chap called Palladium. Palladius. Palladius, sorry. Yeah, th- there were um, there were others who came. Palladius arrived, but he wasn't uh, successful, and he he left, and Patrick took his place. There's some evidence that St. Declan predated Patrick, but Patrick was the most successful, and as I say, probably because he spoke the language of the people, which is really important in terms of communication. Now, the, the story is that, you know, uh, Dehu, when he went to hit Patrick with his slave, it was frozen in his hand by an invisible force. That's the story. Yeah. Part of that story might be that he was so shocked that this foreigner knew the language and greeted him in his native tongue. Yes. And this comes back again to being of the people, which is what we, we alluded to previously. Before we go through and look at the altar, just before we were leaving Saul Church, you were pointing out to me the Wendy House. It isn't obviously Wendy House, and I walked down to it, and it is, it's amazing. It's a bit bigger than you think of a dog kennel, really. Yeah. But you could understand maybe that was where they went to pray. And then you said, that cross over there, we think that's really old, 11th century, something like that. But you explained to me, because I never knew this until you said, if anyone thinks of a Celtic cross, you think of the, the cross, and then behind the cross is a circle. And you tell me what that circle is all about, so please tell me more. Well, obviously, the, the, the Celtic people who lived here, the Irish, you know, it's not that they were atheistic. They just didn't know Christianity, but they, they were aware of the powerful elements like the sun and the water, and they, they worshipped them, of course, because they, they give them, you know, the great power, and uh, they were great elements for them to use as well, particularly the sun, their their fields, their crops and their daylight and everything. And so whenever Patrick came over, he could see the reverence that the people would have had for the elements. And he understood that that was speaking to a greater, deeper spirituality that the people were not fully aware of. Just like um, when St. Paul went to Greece, he could see a, a statue to the unknown God. Yes. It's the same thing. Yeah. And Paul recognized that too. And so did Patrick. So what he said to the people, he said, look, the true son of God, that you worship died on a cross some 400 years ago. So he took the cross and he put the sun with the cross so that the people could accept that at a deeper level. They weren't being misled because they truly worshiped the sun, but the true son of God that really they worshiped died that some hundreds of years before. So that was the Celtic cross and that's what the people were very readily accepted. And the Celtic cross has just been put up on Slemish to mark St. Patrick's Day. So anyone who goes and makes a pilgrimage to Slemish will now see this ancient symbol that Patrick brought of Christianity. And it's it's quite a, apparently unique. I mean, you see them probably in America where the Irish would have gone. But someone told me recently that actually this Celtic cross would have probably come from Rome, you know, maybe Constantine's time. But it really took off on this island. And, and as Elaine said, you know, the people... When Patrick came, he was pushing it at an open door in that they already believed in a power beyond themselves. Call it God, if you like. They worshipped the elements. And there was 
as Elaine said earlier, there wasn't this bloody conversion that you see in other places that have nothing really to do with Christianity. Patrick loved the Irish people. He respected their culture. And what he did is he took their culture and he integrated it with the truth of the true cross, the, the, the truth of Christianity, in a very respectful way, but in a way that they could understand. You know, he, he didn't oppress them. He didn't destroy their beliefs. He took the good of them and he took what was of God and he, um, they were Christianized because the goodness was already there of God anyway. So it just brought the truth to a greater light for the people and that's why they didn't have the difficulty accepting it. So Patrick said that what is of the countryside is of the Most High God and they understood that very well. And also the, the symbol of the shamrock and the tradition of the, the you know three persons, one God, they already saw three as a mystical number. So they were very willing to accept what Patrick had to say. I like what you said about Paul, you know, because I, I think of him as a, one of the great training officers as well, because how he was able to turn it around. He overcame that amazing objection of saying, well, I can tell you who the unknown God is. That was the same for Patrick. And as I mentioned earlier, Martin, Patrick was very clear in his confessions, in his autobiography, he said, just as St. Paul was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles, I was sent as the apostle, the national apostle to the Irish. So there is a great similarity yeah. between them. And when you think of the, you know, the history, the power of what each of them did, you know, they're, they're very much, very much similar characters. Yeah, and with, because Patrick came here and converted the people, he came at a time, you know, he was enslaved because the Roman legions that would have protected his family in Roman Britain were being recalled to Rome because Rome was crumbling. And because Christi Christianity was very tied to, to the Roman Empire, I think that would have weakened Christianity as well. So you have Patrick coming here and then the people of this island going out back to Italy. So you have St. Columbanus, one of the great saints from Bangor, uh, going out on a mission that goes all the way to Bobbio in Italy where he is really celebrated. Mm -hmm. And so it was the conversion that Patrick brought here that rebounded back across Europe. It's quite an amazing yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, because whenever Roman Britain broke down, the vacuum was created, and the power of one man, the power of the Holy Spirit working in Patrick, he then, through the missionaries, as Martin has mentioned, went as far as Iceland, Europe, Italy, and beyond, and they filled that vacuum that had been left open for the Vandals and the barbarians. You know, Western civilization was really born on the hill of Slemish during Patrick's conversion. Slamish being in Northern Ireland, of course. Yes. Yep. I would really recommend uh, anyone interested even in the landscape there to, to take a walk up that hill because there's something really remarkable about it. And you do get my sense of it when I went quite recently was I really felt the spirituality of Patrick there. You know, what he saw, because it wouldn't have changed that much, the landscape from his time. Do you want to then take oh, the step love. in? Please. Okay, so we'll just obviously, Martin, you appreciate this is the altar of the church, this is the sanctuary, so we'll just uh, just very quietly go in and we can have a look and see the altar stone. Wow, so basically it looks like a, it's like a headboard, isn't it? <laughs> as far as width, yeah, as far as width and height is concerned, just for those that obviously we, have, we can't broadcast it in, in video, but imagine like a stone headboard. That's what it is. You can imagine a, a, a large, back, back in those days, I mean, the, the, the altar behind you, you can see, is made of marble. It's quite ornate. Mm. And you can see the size of it. Now, this is a portion of the altar that was recovered. And obviously, it was bigger. But you can see it was basic, but it did the job. Mm. So this would have been the actual altar that St. Patrick would have offered Holy Mass on. At the time, 
that he was a here in Ireland. The Christian faith was known as the Christian faith. There had at that point it hadn't been its headquarters, as it were, was was not in Rome at that time, but it was the Christian faith. Nonetheless, at that time and before Reformation, there was Holy Mass, and and this is where the sacraments were offered, and it is very well documented and very best evidence is that this is actually the portion of St. Patrick's altars. Am I allowed to touch it? Yes, you are. Thank you. And there are two holes on the side of the centre at the top. Any idea what these holes are for? I think at one point it might have been mounted differently. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah. We're actually coming up to 1600 years since St. Patrick yeah. landed in Ireland, 432. That would be uh, 2032. So, you know, it, it's, it's quite a time. And we had a priest here from Carlo, and he touched it, and he said, you know, he obviously, he says Mass, it goes right back to, to the, the Last Supper. But he said, you know, he mm-hmm. felt that the power of that room, of Ch- the Chinaco, where the Last Supper took place, that this was the closest you might get in a physical kind of way. Yeah, that, that, Martina's a really, that's a really good point. We were here, I was, Father Khan said that, and I just want to really bring that out, because if you think of Patrick coming here, particularly to the north of Ireland, where there, where there had not been, where there was no Christianity at all, so whenever he offered mass uh, sacraments on this altar, Father Calm was right, because from that altar stone, one step back is the Last Supper. There wouldn't have been anything else here until that time. Please thank all concerned for letting me be able to come up to you. It's fantastic. Yes, it's uh, thanks to Father Alexander and the people of Saul Church here, St. Patrick's. They're very open to the pilgrims coming here and learning about St. Patrick and the history here, and they're very proud of it as well. Well, I think what we're going to do here is uh, give a quick name check, if that's right, because uh, those that are listening are going, do you know what, I would like to come and have a look. So if they want to get hold of you two guys, obviously because they want you to be their tour guys, what can they do? Uh, they simply contact the St. Patrick Centre and they can book a tour. So we can do bespoke tours. Or this particular part of the tour is on an afternoon one, which is a very long walk. But if it's too much for them, we can accommodate so just go through the St. Patrick Centre. We try to you know, have a walk, and uh, but we can get a bus if, if necessary. And we do private tours, and we do groups. So there's also a group rate, uh, 10% discount for groups over 10. Oh, wow. And if you mention off-grid Christianity when booking, they'll give you an extra prayer. Yeah, and a quiz that might really... <laughs> yeah, be really a quiz. A quiz that only Martin can answer. And as Martina says, St. Patrick Centre, you can get that on... Google that, it's, it's a full word, sympatrickcentre.com, and uh, they have, go into experiences, it's all there. They have their own Facebook page. Brilliant. Where next to then, guys? Sleep Patrick. Let's go. And you can hear more about the life and times of St. Patrick, plus our visits to Sleeve Patrick, Stuart Wells, Down Cathedral, and finally the grave, in part two, which will be available from 18th of March, UK time. For more information on the walk, please visit stpatrickcentre.com. That's stpatrickcentre.com.